0: Welcome to Music 316 for Friday the 6th. On Wednesday we listened to some Buddhist tone contour chant including this one, the Song of the Four Wisdoms or Shichi Bongo. We listened to that all the way through because it's one of the um, examples on your CD for the midterm and so we followed this all the way through from beginning to end. At the very end of the class, I showed you a little bit of this one called sangay, scattering lotus petals, which is in Chinese rather than Sanskrit. And the part of it that you saw ended with a melodic contour called the lark's flight. And I have to just show you that lark's flight again, because nobody ever hears the end of it the first time. Oops. He started at this circle here, and that's always where you start on these curves, so that's the starting point, he went over, down, up and then over these smaller curves here and down the slide here Now at this point, he has to jump to the closest line and the closest line is this one up here and then he has to keep going forward, which means that he reverses and goes back up in that direction, he came down in this direction, goes back up in this direction, and then he comes to the Lark's flight, and that's what we're going to want to hear. part that nobody ever hears the first time that they hear this song because everybody always starts laughing when he gets up in here. And so you never get to hear that ending. Let's just go back and hear that ending again. <coughs> Such a nice thing. As the the lark, the bird flies flies away in the sky. Back, backwards. What do you mean it can't be performed? You're performing it. There. Okay. So let's play from there. Ah. Uh, More musical bird songs to start the day. And I suppose this might bring back reminders of birds returning to the forest in China and it certainly reminds us that program music is a popular kind of music in East Asia that applies to Japan as well as to China so that our next example is also a piece of program music and it's a piece based on nature let's take a look at a few few Japanese instruments that are very popular and widely used we see three of these instruments together here in an ensemble called Sokyoku. It's the kind of music it plays, and it's also the group of musicians who play it. Sokyoku music uses three instruments. You see them here, a zither, a long necked lute, and a flute. <laughs> The koto zither you saw before in the (coughs) gagaku orchestra, and koto is very similar to the Korean kaiagum, a plucked half-tube zither. This is the shakuhachi flute. It's an end-blown flute. You blow it on the end. We call it a notched flute because it has a notch up at the top here where the player blows over the notch to split the air into and start it vibrating. The Koto players picking the strings with their right hands. Oh, and here's the Shamisen lute. This is a lute that came from China, originally from the Tibet Mongol border area. Um, and it's a lute that has three strings in both China and Japan skin over the soundbox, and it's played with a, a pick, excuse me, or a plectrum. Do uh, you know why they develop such huge plectrums for these instruments? As no, well, I don't. Uh, actually, seems um, I'm not sure that anybody does know why they have them, but uh, the old Japanese paintings show them using large size plectrums <coughs> to pick the instruments. So all we can really infer from that, I suppose, is that this was a, a, an old development in um, Japanese instrument playing style. But actually, if you go back to the old Chinese paintings um, from over a thousand years ago from the Tang Dynasty, the, um, the, the the picks that they use for playing their instruments are larger than the ones uh, that are used in China now, if they use the picks. and so it looks like in China they um, evolved towards a smaller size and in Japan, probably towards a larger size. You know, it's a typical kind of thing when music or anything else spreads from one place to another is that you get divergent evolution, divergent development of different features that go, go in different um, directions. So for instance, the oud <coughs> that spread both east and west from, from Persia and Central Asia, uh, developed varieties with, um, with a smaller number of strings to the east and larger number of strings to the west. And you can find similar kinds of divergence, several, similar kinds of differences in many other instruments that have moved from one place to another. To say nothing of instruments that have stayed in the same place and changed over the years or over, over the centuries. Good question. Not a very good answer, but good for making us try to think of what the answers could be. Just a little more of these instruments then so you get a little bit more of a feeling for them. (laughs) And they're, they're all playing the same melody, but they're doing it in a style that fits their own instruments. So the flute is playing a single melody by itself. The stringed instruments are strumming and playing extra notes uh, in between the notes of of the main melody. Music like this developed over many centuries in Japan, and as Japan grew and became more and more urbanized, with more and more people moving to cities, the center of musical development tended to concentrate in cities, too. And the best musicians, the best um, um, star performers on the zithers, the lutes, the flutes, and singers, as you hear here, um, tended to move into the cities where there was the most musical life, where there the, was the most uh, way for them to support themselves. Now in the cities of Japan, the musicians organized themselves into associations, professional associations or clubs that were very much like associations of professionals in Europe when the cities of Europe were developing. These associations are, in English, we call by the term guilds, and they were occupational or professional associations, that is, organizations of individuals following the same occupation, pursuing the same kind of career, and selling their services to people who wanted to buy their services. The need for guilds in Europe or Japan or other urbanizing um, areas, of course, is pretty obvious because when you are in a marketplace trying to sell your services, whatever they might be, making of shoes or building houses or playing music, anything that people might want to pay you to do, it's good to have some kind of organization that look for the best deals and the best prices to support the members of the group so that you have some kind of bargaining power in the open market, so that people are not underpaying you and um, finding somebody who will do the job cheaper in, in mass and starve all of the other people doing it. So these professional guilds formed in Europe and in Japan and in cities in other parts of the world. And they trained musicians, for the music, musical guilds, by process of apprenticeship, where, say, a young person who wanted to follow a profession of being a musician, or a carpenter, <coughs> or a shopkeeper, or a lawyer, or whatever, would go to a master professional and somebody with an established professional reputation and career, somebody with an established (laughs) income, and say, master, I want to become a, well, let's say a flute player or a lute player or a zither player. So you go to the best, the most successful zither player that you can find. And you start studying with the zither player. So now, out of this kind of practice, of association of young people with older teachers. What developed was a kind of an artificial family. That is a family not of birth and marriage, but a family of professional associations and ties. And in many places where guild systems developed, the younger apprentices actually were adopted by by their teachers, by the masters that they served with and lived in their houses and were supported by them during their period of training um, until they were able to get out and do professional gigs on their own. So this is the way of life that developed within the musical guilds of Japan. And one thing that came out of that, of course, was that you didn't have just one shamisen player, the long-neck lute player, in the city of Tokyo, or the other great cities of of Japan where these these systems developed, but you you had many of them. And they were connected with each other, but they were also divided from each other by the specific households, the specific master-disciple relationships that formed over the period of time, over the generations, and that in turn made them uh, affiliated with different lineages of music that was handed down through the different masters and students, through the different households and lineages. And so, for instance, you had two major schools of koto playing that came out of two big lineages that developed in uh, in, in the Toko, Tokyo area. And today, most of the master koto musicians of Japan are followers of one or the other of these two schools, depending on the lineage of their apprenticeship and their study um, to become members of the musical guilds. And the koto is perhaps the prime example uh, of that guild system in contemporary Japan. But I'm going to pick one of these other instruments for us to concentrate on not the koto, and not the shamisen. These are very important instruments. They play beautiful music, but instead, I want to uh, look a little closer at the shakuhachi, the long, the end-blown flute with a knot at the top. Let's just take a quick look at the instrument again. Oh, you see how it curves out at the end there. It comes straight down here and then down here it curves out and faces forward a little. Now you actually shape the bamboo that way when it's growing. You tie your bamboo plant and you brace it so that it has just that amount of curve in the right place. So that when you harvest it, it is exactly the right shape for a shakuhachi. It looks like a very simple thing. In fact, it's a project of fairly complicated bioengineering to produce a musical instrument not by mechanical techniques but by agricultural techniques. So a very special instrument in its own way. But because of that, because of its agricultural manufacturing process, and because of where you find it all over Japan and where it's placed in old books and stories and paintings, you can see that it was originally a rural instrument. an instrument of the farming country, an instrument of the villages that came into the cities of Japan. And by contrast, the flutes of the gagaku orchestra that you hold crosswise to your mouth, the horizontal flutes, the uh, larger and the smaller ones, the ryuteki and the komabui, played for music of the left and music of the right that we saw in the gagaku. These are urban instruments. They were never used out in the farming country. They were not played in the villages. These were instruments that were imported from China as part of the Confucian and the court orchestras. These are something that belonged to the cities and they never had the rural roots, the agricultural roots, the village-ness, the folkiness of the shakuhachi. So how did the shakuhachi make it into the city and into city music, music of people who paid professional musicians to come and make music for them. Well, that's kind of an interesting story. You see, it has something to do with the spread of Buddhism in Japan and what happened in Japanese history. I was telling you about the three waves of Buddhism, the Theravada in Southeast Asia, Mahayana mainly in East Asia, and Vajrayana, or Tantric Buddhism, in um, Tibet, Central Asia, and Japan. So you have these two tendencies developing in Japan. And, for instance, the Vajrayana movement gave rise to a kind of Buddhism called Shingon in Japan, whose music includes the Shomyo, the tone contour songs, like the Song of the Four Wisdoms. Mahayana Buddhism in Japan and there's a lot more Mahayana Buddhism in Japan than there is Vajrayana Buddhism in Japan. Mahayana Buddhism includes many varieties of Buddhism but of course the one that we have heard most of here in America is called Zen Buddhism. This actually came from China where it was called Chan Buddhism. Zen is an interesting form of Buddhism. It's a Buddhism that focuses on meditations, but the meditations are very different from the kind of musical meditations that you have, say, in Shingon, where you, where you visualize four kinds of wisdom as four Buddhas who embody wisdom, and you have all of these elaborate meditations on different Buddhas, male and female Buddhas, and so on. Zen tends to simplify things, where Shingon tends to complicate and elaborate things. So Zen goes for a streamlined, simplified approach to everything. Zen is the kind of Buddhism that uses the Haku, the poetry in a few syllables, to embody a complex truth or a complex message. Zen is the Buddhism of koans, the puzzles, the word games that you use to get people to think about the world differently. What is the sound of one hand clapping is a Zen koan, a Zen puzzle that's supposed to get you to stop thinking the way that you normally do and start thinking about the world in new ways. Well... There was a group of Zen, a sub-sub-wave of Zen in Japan in medieval times that was called Fuke Zen that had special meditation practices. And this played a very unusual role in Japanese history because medieval times in Japan were a time of civil wars between different warlords who controlled different parts of the country. See, Japan formed a united empire pretty early, back in the first millennium AD, but in the second millennium AD, that is after 1000 AD or so, it started to break up into, uh, in, into separate uh, territories that were ruled over by local warlords. And these war- local warlords were fighting for control all of the time and launching wars against each other, trying to conquer each other, and each warlord wanted to be the number one warlord, the um, you know the big um, person on the block, the one who controlled all of the others, and so there were these wars all the time. Now, part of the problem was that Japan is really a, a constricted. In land area. I mean, it's a set of islands. The islands are big, but they're not so big that you can't fill them up fairly fast and fill up with population they did. Land was settled pretty early in terms of land that was available for raising food and growing crops. A lot of, a lot of um, the island of Honshu is, is mountainous, for instance, so you can't um, grow very many crops in parts of it, and so the land fills up. Um, The strong people took away land from the weak people very early, and most of the land fell into the hands of the nobility, the nobles, the ones who controlled the power in the land. And you know know about nobles from um, European history and the history of other places around the world, people who claimed a special Role in life, people who, who who cornered access to power and wealth, and who controlled the lives of others. Um, and then, the land was owned by the nobles, and the people who worked on it paid taxes that it basically a kind of rent for the, for their own homes to the nobles and gave them back part part of their crops and so on. It's a very familiar kind of story from from all over the world. So the problem with this system from the point of view of the nobles was that nobles kept on having children. And when you had more than one child, what were you going to do with your land? Were you going to split it up among all your children? Well, no matter how much you loved your children, if you had very many of them, you had to realize that if everybody got an equal share, pretty soon nobody would have enough land to be able to make their living. And so the Japanese nobles did what nobles all over the world have done, which is to say, well, okay, too bad, but the oldest son gets all of the land and all you other kids, goodbye and good luck. I hope you make it in life. And so they kicked them out of the house. Now here are all these nobles roaming around them without any home and any way to make a living. And all that they have learned in life is how to fight and to make war. So, by the way, the name for these ho- homeless nobles is Samurai, a name that you've heard before. Out of work, younger sons of the, uh, the older nobility generation. Um, actually, the, the older generation are, are Samurai too. The nobles are Samurai, but Over time, most of the samurai became uprooted and homeless and unemployed. And that's dangerous because all they knew how to do is how to make war. But hey, the good news is that there is always another landowner over in the next county who is raising an army who wants to make war and conquer everybody else. And so you can go over there and get a job. You can hire yourself as a mercenary samurai soldier for um, for a, a different samurai, another would-be warlord who's fighting to win. And so they go off to war and they fight the, as, as hired samurai. They fight the hired samurai of the enemy of the guy who hired them. And good, everybody's employed. And not only that, but a lot of them get killed off and that eases the pressure on the land. Um, it eliminates a lot of the competition. Um, and so economically, I suppose it works out pretty well. Too bad for the ones who get killed. But what about the ones who don't get killed? Because somebody's still gonna win and somebody's gonna lose. I mean, the ones who win, presumably a bunch of them will have a job um, uh, you know, running the, the conquered territory. Some of them will get laid off um, too because you don't need as many to um, keep the peace usually as you do to win the war. But what about the guys on the losing side who didn't get killed? Oh, you can't have them hanging around because you can't trust them. They might come back and stab you in the back when you're walking down the street that you thought that you had just won. You've got to get rid of them. And so you keep some of your ex-soldiers on to hunt for those guys who are on the losing side and kill them. Now what are they gonna do? Oh boy. If there isn't another warlord hiring soldiers, even losing soldiers right now, there aren't very many options. It's hard to disguise yourself if you're a samurai because you've grown up all your life acting so proud and so strong and so heroic and so martial that you know people can just smell a samurai a mile away. What are they gonna do? to save their lives. Well, luckily for them, there's this fuke Zen movement in Buddhism. And Fuke Zen is a special <coughs> kind of monastic life. Remember, Buddhism has monasteries where people go and live in communities of full-time religious practitioners. The Buddhist monasteries all over Asia, when you go to a monastery, you get rid of your street clothes and you put on a robe. and that's a kind of an anonymity. It, it uh, is a symbolic <coughs> removal of your old identity and taking on a new identity. And it's a new identity that isn't based on your individuality or your family or your previous identity, but that is based on your membership in a Buddhist congregation. So that's what pretty much all Buddhist monks do in Asia. But Fukai Zen did something <coughs> else besides that. They put on a basket. What kind of a basket? Well, it was a, um, a bamboo or woven rattan, a kind of a plant fiber basket. And you can see bas- b- baskets like that in various kinds of uh, household goods stores or import stores. Uh, people make them for waste baskets. And actually, the Fukezen basket is about the size of a medium small waste basket, but it's tailored. To fit over your shoulders and over your head and comes down to your chest and to your back, and it fits completely over your head. Hey, how about that? That's complete anonymity. What could be better for a samurai running for his life? Oh, and the fukezen basket has an opening down here on your chest so that you can put your shakuhachi up inside the basket and play the flute. And that's what the Kukhe Zen monks did for meditation was they walked around roaming the countryside playing their shakuhachi flutes and they were playing uh, musical meditations on the flute. Musical meditations they would play would be not the sound of one hand clapping, but the sound of emptiness, the sound of nothingness, because that's what Mahayana Buddhism says is the basis of existence, nothingness or emptiness. sound of wisdom, a sound of compassion. This is what they would play, a musical meditation on philosophical concepts, on things that were part of the Buddhist intellectual life. And they would roam the streets and the cities and the, highway and the rural areas of Japan and play these musical meditations on the shakuhachi. And of course, some of them would wander into the cities playing the shakuhachi, and people in the cities musicians in the cities heard this and said, well, hey, that's kind of cool music and that's really a nice instrument because you can use it to play all kinds of expressive things. You can use it to play, for instance, something like This isn't a Buddhist meditation. This is music that was composed after the musicians in the city, members of the musician guilds, got a hold of the shakuhachi and said, what can we play on this instrument? What can we play that makes use of the special expressive emotional qualities of this instrument. And one thing that they said is that, well, you know, it sounds so much like the countryside. It sounds so different from all of our city music. Why don't we use it for program music that brings up images of the countryside? Because most of the people in the cities of... Japan were new immigrants. At this point, we're talking about the um, late 17th, early 18th centuries, the so called Edo period, when the capital of Japan had moved to Tokyo. And cities were growing like crazy, and people were moving in from all over Japan. And there were a lot, a lot of exciting things happening in the cities, but there was also a lot of nostalgia for life in the country and the way things had been in the country that was so different from the way life was in the cities so what are the sounds then that you can play to 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 help people with that sense of nostalgia to imagine life in the country well you can play sounds of nature one of the wildest sounds of nature that you can hear in Japan or in Washington State is the sound of deer calling to each other in the distance in the fall when the male deer that is, as we call them elk the male elk out in the Olympic Peninsula in the whole rainforest and in the Olympic Mountains Call out to the female deer and sing. Do they sing like this? How many of you have heard them? Two. What do you think? Else, no, maybe. Hmm? <coughs> I'm sorry, I don't have any recordings of the um, of the Olympic elk herds. To play for you. I do have some from Colorado and they're a little different from this and I really wish I had a recording of the deer singing in the mountains of Japan. But that's what this is. This is program music representing the deer calling back and forth across the mountains, across the valleys to each other. And I think that is where we will leave off our musical examination of Japan. So if you're interested, we don't have the final two examples on on the midterm listening exam. We'll go up only through this example on CD number 2.